Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week we head to Italy's Dolomite Mountains to find out how one restaurant has set out to immerse its guests in the landscape, culture and food of the place. Today at roughly 2,000 meters above sea level, Gasparri is regaling people about the challenges of cooking in the cold and at altitude, recalling one time when it was minus 15 degrees Celsius and it took 50 minutes to cook the pasta. Then Martin Barry, the founder of Manifesto Markets in Prague and Berlin, on how he launched food markets that transform neighborhoods. We talked to almost 800 restaurants before we we narrowed the list down to about 240. We tasted 60 restaurants and we signed 22. We'll also visit one of Singapore's most popular new restaurants and get the week's food and drink headlines. All that here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. Ricardo Gaspari and Ludovica Rubini are the husband and wife team behind the Michelin-starred restaurant San Brite, opened in 2017 and set among northern Italy's picture postcard Dolomite Mountains. The restaurant, just outside Cortina d'Ampezzo, produces much of its own food thanks to a family farm and is firmly focused on the idea of circularity in the kitchen. While Cortina may be a high-end venue and co-host of the 2026 Winter Olympics, the couple want people to see what everyday life living with the land is like here, which is why they recently launched Casa Genesis, an events platform that immerses guests in the landscape, culture and, of course, the food of this place. We sent our Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker, to Casa Genesis's air, an inaugural event in a series based around the elements, Earth will follow on the 17th and 18th of June. It sent this report. (laughs) Early spring in Cortina and it's still definitely puffer weather. An outdoor fire is crackling, wine is being served and an eclectic bunch of people from around Italy and the rest of Europe has assembled. We're at the opening night of Casa Genesis's Aria, or Air. The venue for the first evening is El Brite de Larieto, the chalet-like alpine restaurant where Gasparri and Rubini first worked, started by Gasparri's family. Crucially, it's also a farm, providing much of the produce we'll be eating over the next few days. Tonight's menu, proper mountain food. Not that we've earned it yet including scrumptious, fatty bone marrow and canedili, giant dumplings covered in piles of grated cheese. My name is Ludovica Rubini. I'm from Bologna and I'm one of the founders of Sambrite with my husband, Riccardo Gaspari. Our idea is to share this type of life because Cortina, you know, is very famous for ski and also is like a glamour place. But the real life in Cortina is not glamour. When we decided to do Genesis, we started from the idea of to take people and bring them inside the nature. This one is our first event, AIR, and the idea of the event is what we live all day. It's a packed itinerary over two days. 
This weekend, we are starting with snowshoeing inside the forest. We are going from Rastua to Le Rosa. Le Rosa is a very famous place, amazing place. And after that, we are going to do talk about sustainability and uh, regenerative also. And we are eating amazing spaghetti. And we are inviting two chefs, one from Slovenia. He is from a place like Cortina. Granishka Gora is a ski area. And uh, I met, they are from Bologna. They took Green Michelin star last year. And they are very focused about vegetable garden. So we are very curious about the dinner. But first, the snowshoeing. We're in the beautiful national park, walking through the snow got my snowshoes on, which you can probably hear. We're just crossing a bit of stone before we go back on the snow. And I think, really, earning that lunch. That lunch is at a tiny mountain refuge where a platter of homemade cheeses, cold meats and bread has been laid out. On cue, it starts to snow. Main course is a signature from Sambrite restaurant, cooked up by Ricardo Gasperi, who is the chef. Spaghetto al pinomugo. The spaghetti dish is made with grapeseed oil that has been infused with mountain pine buds and branches for up to a year, meaning we are, quite literally, tasting the mountain. Today, at roughly 2,000 metres above sea level, Gasperi is regaling people about the challenges of cooking in the cold and at altitude. Recalling one time when it was minus 15 degrees Celsius and it took 50 minutes to cook the pasta. We are preparing the um, spaghetti al pinomugo. It's not traditional spaghetto, but it's uh, our recipe. Maybe it was eight years ago the first time. is a spaghetto cooked inside the broth with um, pine oil. And the pasta we made like a risotto. When the broth is dry, put another broth. When the pasta is ready, very slowly, I have to put the pine oil inside the pasta. Yeah, the alarm's going off. The time, yeah, time off, but it's not ready. <laughs> it's not ready. Maybe one minute. Ludo, Ludo, Gasperi says that he started cooking at El Brite del Arieto to help his family. But he also jokes that nothing replaces skiing as his first love, even if cooking has become a second passion. His philosophy revolves around reusing and repurposing food. Fondamentalmente la cucina rigenerativa e circolare che noi facciamo si basa su quello un po' che lo stile di vita che avevano in montagna una volta, quindi... An environmentally conscious way of living that he says is how people used to live. Ludovico Robini explains more. We started five years ago when we opened Sambrite to speak about regenerative kitchen. Luckily, we have our products and we use all the products for the dishes in the restaurants. If we have like waste or something, we use this food for doing something for the animals. So it's like a circle of the kitchen. But the animals eat very well. Yes, <laughs> very well. Yeah. Michelin starred uh, animal star feed. Food, yeah. <laughs> they are very lucky. Yeah. The idea of circularity and regeneration is at the core of the Casa Genesis Weekender. 
is what motivates talks on Saturday evening around the topic of sustainability. With guests including coffee chairman Andrea Illy. And it's what motivates a Sunday session of mindfulness in a mountain valley next to a flowing river. Part of the collaborative spirit means inviting two chefs, Bologna's Lorenzo Vecchia and Slovenian David Zefran, who share similar attitudes towards food. They produce an inventive and surprising 14-course tasting menu dinner on Saturday evening. Zefran, who we catch up with in a noisy, active mountain kitchen, explains how reuse is key to his cooking too. It's a kabucha squash. It's been cooked in uh, butter that was infused with toasted hay. Toasted hay? Yeah. Wow. It's a little bit kind of alpine dish because it will be served with uh, reduced weight. So it's traditionally things that fix it. <laughs> and uh, but you may feel delicious it. And then you have some smoked muscle and mushroom. And uh, it's kind of old uh, to also that we use a lot of things that people think they are scraps. With lungs full of fresh Dolomites air, heads bursting with ideas, and yes, bellies definitely larger, it's time to head back to reality and say goodbye to our Casa Genesis mountain utopia. It's pretty safe to say that lasting friendships have been made. For Monocle in Cortina d'Ampezzo, I'm Ed Stocker. Thanks, Ed. You are with Monocle Radio. Up next to Singapore, Natasia Soetantio is the executive chef of Salt and Palm, a modern Indonesian restaurant in Sydney. In March, Salt and Palm opened a second restaurant in Singapore with a completely new menu that incorporates flavours from across Southeast Asia in its dishes as well as its cocktails. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant talks to Soetantio at the new Salt and Palm in Singapore to learn more. When I started cooking professionally, Indonesian food is basically the first cuisine that I learned. And it sticks with me in a way because I feel like when I was living in Indonesia, I wasn't really thinking about Indonesian food a lot. Like it's just like, you know, my, my normal food daily wise because I saw how labor intensive and intricate it was in, in my father's kitchen with all the spice based cooking. I feel like it needs some more recognition in terms of like global perspective. So that's how I started uh, to become interested in Indonesian cooking. But then I actually never wanted to limit myself to just like one style of cooking, I suppose. And that's why I also didn't want to just explore authentic flavors as well. For me, authenticity is a bit subjective. So that's why I feel like even though I'm learning the basics of Indonesian cooking, I still wanted to explore it more creatively and with my time in Australia as well, I feel it also influences me uh, to do like different styles as well, more modern, more elevated, mixing it with other cultures. So yeah, I started cooking Indonesian cuisine, but um, I actually don't want it to be limited. 
could you talk a bit about your first restaurant in Sydney and how these kind of modern Australian plus Indonesian influences and whatever else did influence you um, kind of all met in, in Salt and Palm? Actually, after my father's restaurant, I decided that I wanted to focus on this elevating Asian flavors, representing it in a more modern, elevated. So I decided to open Salt and Palm in Sydney. But actually, if you compare the two venues in Singapore and in Sydney, they're both slightly different. When I was in Sydney, I explored a lot of more traditional dishes. So uh, in our Sydney venue, I make uh, dishes that actually directly represents an actual dish um, in, that you can find in Indonesia. But it's just bladed in a modern way. But uh, in Singapore, what I did is I'm um, just taking inspiration from the dishes in Indonesia and then just repackage it in, in a totally different dish. Whatever dish that you find in Singapore, you, you might not have the actual representation of the dish in Indonesia. Yeah, I noticed that with um, with the menu here, compared to the Sydney one, it's a lot more, you know, for example, what what's one of the, like the, the rendang with like the, the whole bone in with the, yeah. the short rib, there's a lot more of like more direct fusion or like even dishes that aren't necessarily Indonesian but have those flavors rather than just, as you say, straight up. Why did you decide to make Singapore menu different from the Sydney menu? First of all, I wanted to be more creative. Uh, I think for me, what I'm trying to achieve in Singapore venue, I'm not trying to do fusion per se. It's just that for me personally, I think Asian cuisines in general can be explored in a creative way because I feel like in general, Asian cuisines are sort of stuck in this traditional framework like for it to be successful. But I think you can, you can play around, you can be creative about it, but like as you mentioned with the beef short ribs with the whole bone in it's just for example taking inspirations from what i found in australia because i found a lot of restaurants use beef short ribs and I, it's actually one of my favorite cuts of beef as well so i mean why not using uh, that for rendang base as a sauce rather than a curry kind of like dish. What are some of the specific regions in Indonesia where you get inspiration from? Um, I know that Bali, for example, you get a lot of flavors from there. What are some other places and what flavors are you taking from those places? The potato cake is from Java, but that's historically, that one's quite interesting too because uh, my direct inspiration is from Perkedel, which is an Indonesian potato cake. But actually it's not, technically speaking, it's not fully Indonesian. It's actually, the history is from Dutch Indonesian. Dutch Indonesian version actually has more mincemeat, but in Indonesia, back then, I, I don't think meat's available at all times, so they just use potato. But my potato cake actually has vegan mayo and vegan kaffir, which is totally, totally not <laughs> like what you have in, in Indonesia. I just wanted to have a, like a vegan offering and I think a lot of the dishes also inspired by Bali because I grew up in Bali from when I was 12 years old until uh, I was in high school and then I moved to Australia. So we have the fish cake and the porchetta which is basically taking uh, Balinese flavors 
um, because we make the spice paste pretty much the same as the one in in Bali, but we're just presenting it in a different way. Other dishes, I also take inspirations from Sulawesi. So not just the gohu, but the river prawns. The sauce that we use is actually inspired by like a curry sauce from there. It's not exactly curry. In 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 there, uh, in that region, they have like this sauce that they make either f- as a like for a braised dish or a soup dish or like more a drier version. But it's basically made of like chili, shallots, garlic, and a lot of like fragrant herbs like lemongrass and kamangi and pandan as well. So I'm using that for my river prawn dish. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant reported from Singapore. Up next to the week's food and drink headlines, here is Monaco's Monica Lilis. The company tasked with serving meals at the Olympic Village in Paris during the 2024 Summer Games unveiled part of their menu earlier this week. French food services firm Sodexo will serve some 15,000 athletes fresh baguettes, gourmet meals and environmentally conscious French cuisine, created by some of the country's most famed chefs. The main eatery at the Paris Olympic Village is expected to seat 3,500 people and has been dubbed the biggest restaurant in the world. Spanish police have arrested more than 20 people for an alleged scheme to use water from illegal wells to grow tropical fruits such as avocados and mangoes. In a statement, the Spanish Civil Guard said a four-year investigation had uncovered 250 illegal wells and ponds in the drought-stricken Azaquia district of Malaga. The southern Andalusian region of Spain has been gripped by drought since 2021 and there are strict water regulations in the area. The value of Norwegian seafood exports to China hit a record high in the first quarter of 2023. In April, 40,000 tonnes of salmon, cod and other seafood were shipped from Norway to China, an 18% increase from the previous year. This now makes Beijing Norway's third largest market. Norway's salmon exports to China are expected to continue to increase due to rising demand for more expensive cuts of fish from the nation's growing middle class. Those are the week's food and drink headlines, now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monaco Radio. Finally, today we meet Martin Barry, founder and CEO of Manifesto, a market and hospitality brand based in Prague, which launched five years ago. Martin is a landscape architect originally from New York and is also the founder of Resize, a non-profit organization focused on design and architecture in the urban landscape. After Manifesto Market's success in Prague, it made sense to grow the business and the company's first outpost outside the Czech Republic recently opened in Berlin, Potsdamer Platz. Martin joined me at Midori House Studio One to tell us more about Manifesto and its story and what has made it so successful. The odd thing about Manifesto is that it was never meant to be a business, in fact. I'm a former landscape architect and urbanist. I spent kind of 10 years out of New York City designing things around the world, mostly to improve neighborhoods in cities. And Manifesto started as a project like that. I wanted to redevelop a forgotten corner in the city of Prague, uh, where I was living. 
at the time. And we took this brownfield, which no one cared about, was quite dangerous. We did a summer pop-up, and 7,000 people showed up on the first day. And all of a sudden, I opened my eyes, and I thought, okay, we have a business now. <laughs> and so we grew a team from three to 150 people in the last four years. And what we do is we, we try to find forgotten places in cities and enliven them or reinvent them with food and entertainment and culture. That is really the crux of what we do. At the same time, we're inviting small businesses there, independent restaurants, to create new futures for themselves, to give them expansion opportunities and to highlight the great food that they're doing. What do you think have been the greatest success stories so far? If you think about individual businesses you have supported or corners of Prague, for example, you've managed to transform, what are you most proud of? There's a couple. I mean, right now we just opened our, our first location outside of Czech Republic. Um, we brought two restaurants from from Prague, a Mexican restaurant actually with three Mexican brothers from the Efe. Um, we brought them into their first international location in Berlin, so they're expanding internationally with us. We also brought a barbecue joint. Um, the chef was originally from New York City. He moved to Prague, created the best barbecue in Prague, and we brought him to Berlin as well. So two restaurants we're helping expand internationally. We're really proud of that. That's something I think that, that it drives us. The second thing is really core to my heart and to core to the heart of the company, which is reinventing spaces and cities. We really see ourselves as a community amenity, a place that people can come, gather, be entertained and have great food while supporting local restaurants. Um, we've done that now in Prague. We, we transformed two of, um, let's say, forgotten spaces in the city, and both of them were actually quite dangerous. People would not go there before. There were, quote-unquote, no-go zones. And now, you know, through those two spaces in Prague, we've actually had about 2.5 million people visit them in the last four years, and they've become really vibrant places in the community. How easy has it been for you to go to those places, though, and go and start something? You, you described them as almost no-go zones. So when you go there with your with your kit, what happens there and how difficult was it? Yeah, it's odd for people. You know, when I first started uh, this idea in the company in 2018, I was told no so many times because of the location I picked. Uh, we picked a location next to the highway. Part of it was underneath the highway, underneath two billboards. And people went there usually to do drugs, to buy drugs. And there was a lot of muggings there, in fact, before we opened our first site. So Basically, the, the buses that would take laborers back to Poland or Ukraine, they stopped at, at this site and picked people up that were going back home to see their families. They were full of cash. So local guys would always mug these these poor laborers before they got on the bus. So everyone knew this street was not, not a place to go in the city. So when I asked restaurateurs if they wanted to open there um, with me, a guy who had no experience in, in food halls, food markets, restaurateurship, um, everyone said no. Even the landlord wasn't sure it was going to work. Uh, so we kind of fought through all those nose and, and created a very vibrant place which people are surprised by in fact sometimes people told me they didn't even see the first location a year after it was built because when they walked on that street they sort of forgot about their, their surroundings and so they didn't even look up on the street and didn't realize we were there but yet it was the most popular venue in the whole country <laughs> um, we've done that now twice um, and when you go there on a Saturday morning with your kids you'll walk past junkies and sort of you know strange people on the street and and by the time you get to to us, you'll enter the gates and you'll see a kind of vibrant place with people of all ages, really. How do you see what differentiates Manifesto from so many other food market businesses around the world? Let's talk about the importance of great design, for example, and, and those locations. I think that's important. Given my, my background in design and architecture, uh, we have an in-house design team, so we care a lot about the environmental psychology of a place. How, does a pe how do people feel when they arrive? Um, what kind of materials are they sitting on? 
was kind of contextual for, for the environment. So we spent a lot of time on the early phase of the design process. In fact, I even designed some of the chairs in Berlin myself, you know, my own hand. It was really one of the only fun parts of the project for me, other than tasting the food, given the complexity of that project. But designing a bar stool, for example, we spend time on these things to, to get the experience right. And I think customers no- notice that. Tell me more about those design decisions. You talk about it's like you talk about the importance of of how people feel when they go to those markets. But tell me about those chairs, those benches, those designs, those textiles, everything people come across over there. Yeah, so I'm I'm I know that natural materials are very important for me and are they're very important for our guests, I think. You know, the feel of the wood, whether it's walnut or oak how the finish is applied to that wood. We really want to kind of draw out, the, let's say, the naturalness or the, the natural uh, qualities of the wood or the materials we use. So we use some leather in Berlin as well, just to try to kind of enhance the tactile experience when you're dining. We're also trying to soften the experience as well, so we spend a lot of time thinking about the sound system and the lighting system to make sure we have uh, an environment that people want to hang out in, they want to stay in, which is completely different, I think, than most of the kind of hawker markets or street food markets of the world. Um, What I'd like to do with these places is to try to organize the chaos of a hawker market or a night market, which we love, right? As as guests, as as um, consumers in cities, especially when we're traveling, we kind of love the vibrancy of these places. So we're trying to kind of keep that vibrancy of a hawker market, but organize it in a way with design and with experience that kind of allows you to settle down a bit and not be so kind of stressed out in such an environment. People management in the in the hospitality business is is much more complicated than I expected. What do you mean? Well, when I was an architect, we ran a studio, and everyone's kind of the same, right? We all wear black clothes, and we work hard all day, and there's not many too too many complaints. Everyone's just happy to do the work for the most part. Um, in hospitality, you know, we we have uh, people in the company that. Uh, we have a technology group in the company that's kind of powering these places with with products and a tech stack behind the scenes. We have a big HR team. We have a big finance team. We have a huge marketing team. And then we have another world in the company, which is hospitality, guest services, and the you know front of house and back of house management. Kind of getting my head around how to manage all of the intricate and kind of disparate personalities within the, the company. That's been hard for both Holly and I. And I run the company with Holly, my wife. Uh, she's from Taipei. She comes from a, uh, her background is Google and Yahoo. So we we both talk almost every night and every day about you know some specific challenge in the company, which is usually people oriented, because the kind of head office functions that I described in the first part of that talk and the and the front of house and back of house operations that I described in the second part, they're completely different worlds. And, you know, the, the restaurant service or let's say hospitality people are really, they really care about the day-to-day function of the job. Our job from the office is to think kind of like, you know, three, six, nine months in the future, maybe three years in the future. And we're sort of always struggling with the day-to-day operations needs and the long-term planning goals. At the same time, I think in our head office, there's, I think, people from 14, 15 different countries. Um, so we all come from different cultural backgrounds and speak different languages. And then, you know, we don't all speak the language of hospitality as well. So there's a constant struggle with try to, how to understand people, which makes us constantly talk about listening. Um, and so it's a daily conversation in the office and, and with the teams, listen to each other more carefully and try to understand each other and understand their, their viewpoints before we kind of come to conclusions. So I think People management is definitely the most challenging. Uh, at the same time, for anyone that's listening out there that's expanded their business, uh, particularly restaurant business or hospitality, geo-expansion or moving into new countries is way more challenging than you might expect. 
Especially when you're entering Germany, which we just did. Exactly. I was just going to ask about that. You opened a location uh, in Berlin's Potsdamer Platz just just a few months ago, and it sounds amazing. But you you make it sound like it wasn't very easy to start with. It's amazing. You know, we've since. The moment we opened this business in June 2018, we, we wanted to expand it. And we thought there was a big opportunity to enliven cities around the world with this kind of concept. And, you know, spruce up or, or change forgotten places. So when we had the opportunity to open a Potsdamer Platz in Berlin, I thought, well, great. Potsdamer Platz needs someone like us to reinvent that place and bring vibrancy and bring life back to the center of Berlin. Um, it's three hours from Prague, basically, so it's a quite nice place for the, your first expansion outside of the country. But the challenges in terms of bureaucracy, administration, uh, workforce, they're immense, and we didn't really understand that very well until we got into the market. So um, I wouldn't change it because the learnings were so great that I think now the next step for us should be easier um, because I do think we chose one of the hardest places to open a business. Germany. Germany, Yeah. It takes a long time for everything. To establish a bank account, it took us almost nine months. To get our business license, it took us six months. Um, so for a young company, ours is almost less than four years old, to start something like this, um, it was a, it was a big step in, in Germany. So understanding the the local labor laws, for example, we're still understanding that, um, which is much different than, than the rest of Europe. Well, you've done it once now. You've gone, you've gone abroad. I'm wondering, be dreams or actual plans, what is going to happen in the future? Yeah, you know, I'm often dreaming. And, and so we do think that there's opportunities, almost endless opportunities around the world for redeveloping cities, first of all, and, and redeveloping particular places and cities with our type of concept. So um, we see this hospitality concept and, and, you know, events and culture concept um, relevant in, in places as far off as Singapore or, or Melbourne or San Francisco, for example. We're looking very seriously at next step expansion in, in Europe. Um, so we're looking at Ireland at something very seriously. We're also looking at expanding in Germany uh, because we've gone through the hard work of doing it. But I think if there's a dream out there, I think it's probably uh, to do something in Melbourne, a city which I think uh, needs, let's say, a heart for, for food and culture in the city. Um, and uh, because of my, my Holly, my partner is from Taipei. We spend a lot of time in Asia. I think Singapore would be a natural kind of first step in that market. So it's out there. We're going to kind of tread carefully and 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 walk slowly, particularly in this environment that we're in today. But we definitely see ourselves as as trying to do this in other cities. And I would imagine the word spreads quite fast as well. How how often do you get phone calls from different countries and from different operators trying to invite you over? Yeah, Marcus, a lot. We, we've we've been contacted uh, like I think 120 times in the last uh, year with new opportunities and new sites. So we have a team that just focuses on this and where to identify new places. Since the business was founded, we have well over 200 locations that we've analyzed, um, either with a quick kind of discovery process or gone all the way to a term sheet or something with the landlord. And it's it's amazing how many opportunities there are for kind of community spaces at a smaller scale, let's say about 10,000 square feet to 15,000 square feet, and probably dozens of locations that, that could be suitable for, let's say, what we call flagships, which are kind of over 30,000 square feet. And we're looking at both, frankly. I think that, that the opportunities are there. Um, and it's exciting for us because we see ourselves as purpose-driven. Um, we do think we create a great hospitality concept and really lively, exciting environment. 
but at the same time, we wouldn't do it if we couldn't create a community hub. So that's really the purpose of the company is to try to find places to do that. And, and particularly today, all of us need connection and all of us really are, are so hungry to be with each other. These places tend to, to create those environments that are comfortable for lots of different folks to come together. And that's what I really care about. What is the recipe for creating a successful community hub? Does it happen organically when you bring food, drink and entertainment there or does it need something else? I think it can happen organically if if you curate the food properly, and we spend a lot of time on that. And if you give me the, a minute to, to explain how we do that, I, I would. Um, so in Berlin, for example, a place like Potsdamer Platz, there's not really any food around that you would care to eat. I mean, there's, there's a Five Guys Burger, there's a Pizza Hut, and stuff, stuff you can find elsewhere. Creating a, a community of independent restaurants with high quality is quite difficult in any city. We spent nine months on it. We talked to almost 800 restaurants before we, we narrowed the list down to about 240. We tasted 60 restaurants and we signed 22. Um, so we really worked hard on that list. And so it happens organically if you can put the right stories together. And we think the story behind the food is almost as important as the taste of the food itself. Um, they're correlated. So a good example is, is Moxa in Berlin. We talked to Moxa. He is uh, Zed, the owner of this restaurant, and chef. He, has, he had one location. And The food was exquisite. He he marinates the meat for two weeks before he smokes it, before he serves it to the guest. And the background, the backstory is that Zed was an orphan in Western Canada. He was raised by Punjabis and Sikhs. He spent his kind of teenage and 20s, uh, teenage years and 20s in India. He learned how to cook really on the streets of India. And then he brought this to Berlin. And, you know, we found him in a really kind of forgotten hole in the city and and he opened with us he actually closed his existing restaurant and the, f the taste of the food is like nothing else you'd ever find in Europe probably and Zed's mission is to allow people in Europe to taste the diversity and the depth of Indian cuisine and spices and he's doing that really well so that's one example another one is like Shan Yu Shan Yu is a, a female chef Um, originally from North Korea, um, raised in, in central China. We she has the best noodle house in the city, um, in Charlottenburg. We tasted her noodles because we wanted the noodles in, in Manifesto. And we saw on her menu that she had some Korean fried chicken. So I said, like, you know, what is this? Why do you have Korean fried chicken? You have the best noodles in the city. Why would you offer Korean food? And she said, I'm actually from North Korea, um, but I was raised in, in China. And so, you know, I really love making Korean food, but no one ever asked me. And so I said, well, I'm going to ask you. So you have to open a Korean fried chicken place alongside your, your noodle shop. And she did. And now those two units are two of the best-selling units in our, in our venue. Um, this, this chicken is really exquisite. It has a really nice taste. And she has an amazing story as well. So I think when you can create stories behind the food that resonate with people and that people care about, they'll come. If I can talk about one more, we focused on female chefs um, in all of our locations, but particularly in Berlin. Less than 10% of the industry is represented by female-owned restaurants. Um, we wanted to do better than that. So I think we're somewhere around 30%, which is not enough, but we, we worked very hard to find some of the best female owner-operator chefs in the city of Berlin. Um, Malake, I think, is, is probably one of the best. Uh, Malake is a Syrian refugee. She was a TV chef, very famous in Damascus um, before the war. She fled. She came to Germany. She somehow ended up cooking for Angela Merkel. Um, she became quite famous. Everyone encouraged her to open a restaurant. She did. She has an amazing Syrian restaurant. 
um, in Mita. We asked her to open her second location with us, and again, she's one of the top sellers um, with our guests in Berlin because she has an amazing story, which you can taste in the food. It's just really like probably the best Syrian food you can find in Europe, I think. And and so your question about how do you create these places of vibrancy, I think you do it with stories, and, and, and you can tell those stories through food. And I think food is a natural aggregator of people. Um, people want different types of things. So we become a kind of great place to go if you're not sure what to do with your colleagues or your friends or your family. You don't know what to eat. Everyone can kind of get what they want. And then we add layers on top of that. So we try to organize the experience in a nice way. We think we're building one of the best cocktail menus in, in Berlin. We have a great cocktail and mixology team. Two of our barmen are from the top three bars in the world. Um, one from Beirut, which I know you've done a lot of work in Beirut, and one from Athens from the Clumsies. Um, so we're building really exquisite cocktail menus with uh, a brand that we also own called Soot Bar. Um, and that the kind of layering of experiences and, and mixology and food helps create the narrative of the place. And then on top of that, we bring cultural events. We try to work with local artists, local DJs, um, to add this kind of layer of vibrancy to the experience, which you know you may not expect when you go to a market hall or, or a street market. So I think all of this kind of creates a story that then can make a place vibrant. And Sometimes it happens overnight, like in Prague. It, it basically just, we snapped our fingers and people showed up. Um, and that's more or less the case in Berlin as well. We still have a lot of work to do to make it, I think, uh, um, more vibrant in the evenings. But so far, we've had a lot of success drawing people. I think over 120,000 people in the first two months have come through uh, Berlin. Martin Barry, founder and CEO of Manifesto there. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Finland's Eurovision entry, Gäria, with Cha Cha Cha. Thanks for listening and until next week.